Welcome to Season 13 of Eyes and Teeth. This season is titled The Rats. The Rats have been around since 1889 and there are never more than 200 members in the order at one time. I was member 883 and my proposer was Roy Hudd, OBE, and my seconder was ventriloquist Roger de Corsi. Can you imagine sitting in lodge listening to anecdotes and laughing at fellow comedians or actors, musicians, magicians, ventriloquists or members of the royal household sharing one thing that is universal and that is laughter. At one time, Laura and Hardy were sat there with wee Georgie Wood or Little Titch would have turned up on a night off to talk about his busy week at the music hall. This is Stan and Oliver reading a letter from their fellow brother water rats. Gee, that's well. What's that? It's a letter from the water rats in England. Oh? They want us to say hello from all the water rats in America. Say, that's nice. Mm. Who, are you going to, who are you going to mention first? Well, anything. There's Chick York. Chick York. And that was Bobby May. Bobby May. Oh, what a juggler he was. Boy. And last but not least, Daniel Dallinock and Freddie Morton. They all send greetings. Goodbye, brother water rats and our many friends and family. Good luck and God bless you all. We'll never forget. That's right, Stanley. We never shall. Goodbye. Charlie Chaplin was proposed into the order and was running late, but Brother Rat stayed there until he finally arrived about midnight. And it turned out to be a very memorable occasion. Just think of Tommy Cooper and Les Dawson ad-libbing across the room when Max Bygraves was trying to tell a story. The order is steeped in history of variety and humour and we meet around 12 times a year on top of organising charity events as well as the highlight of each year when that year's King Rat plans the biggest party in London in November at their very own ball. In recent times our last King Rat Dougie Brown was crowned in 2020. For obvious reasons his crown was rolled over to 2021 and 2022 where this year would have been his big event. Sadly we lost Dougie to a sudden illness mid-2022, which still saddens us today. Dougie was the most brilliant of kings. We were all treated to the banter. He had the stories and we were happy to hear them. He worked on stage as a brilliant comedian, as an actor in television and commercials. Even towards the end, he was turning work away. We miss you, Dougie. Max Bygraves, OBE, loved being part of the Grand Order of Water Rats, and his story today is told by my first guest in this season. Anthony Bygraves grew up surrounded by the glamour and glitz of British show business, and he himself has created a wealth of music and comedy, as well as kept his father's legacy alive. Anthony has written, produced and directed shows and records, and toured worldwide in his own right. Listen to his story today as we chat about his father, Max, the London Palladium, Judy Garland, Peter Bruff and Archie Andrews, when James Mason saved his life, his final moments with Tony Hancock in Australia, and so much more as he tells me more than just one story. So on this very special edition, we celebrate Max Bygrave's centenary. Yes, Mr. B would be 100 today on October the 16th as he was born on this day in 1922. Welcome to Eyes and Teeth, the Rats, Anthony Bygraves. Good morning, hi Stephen. Good morning, viewers and listeners. We met, I believe, in 1999. I, I don't know if you remember that, that time we first met, but uh, I like to go back further 
before I even knew your good self. You were born in London. You're you're a true Londoner. I was born in Stepney. I was born about 100 yards from St Mary in the Bow. And I've had this flipping ringing in my ear ever since. I can't... <laughs> oh, really? You turn <laughs> that into a tune, surely. <laughs> Rihanna, no running in the corridor. Morning class. Time for exams. Time for verbs and vocab. Comprong? You might be from the Eastie, where bow bells used to chime. Where pearly kings and queens weren't true. Once upon a time, you might have had a breezer, a knees-up with Mother Brown. You might like jellied eels and mash, a pint to splash it down. But do you parlez-vous, Cockney? Or just stand there looking gormless, blank and not me? Can you duck, can you die, from Stackney Green to Rubber High? Come on, Charlie, let's go parley Cockney. Yeah, yeah so, I, was, I was born there in 1947. 47, wow. That's no, it's a long time, isn't it? I mean, it was only four years after that, so say 51, which was when my father was born, 51, you performed for the first time on stage and you were four years old. I, I was in America by then. I mean, do you know how it all happened? It, <laughs> you it made it, in those fours, you made it in America. <laughs> I, I was on Broadway. Well, I wasn't appearing, but I was up there. That yeah. is astounding. Because what is the very early early image that you have of remember i mean you were four years old surely you don't remember that moment well, before or... that I, I think the earliest memories of dad and and kind of showbiz was uh living in romford because mum come came from essex okay. and uh, you know mum and dad met when they were stationed at raf one church in essex in 1940 and apparently that's where i was conceived in 1946 and mum said if anyone ever asked you what sign you were born under tell them air raid shelter mine the step <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well. she had a good memory bless <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was where i was conceived and then i think they got their first council house in um, just after the war which would have been 47 i was lucky i didn't have to go through any of that um, one of my earliest memories is crawling around the kitchen floor and mum was cooking like a Sunday dinner. And so, suddenly mum pointed up at the shelf. She said, daddy's going to be on there soon. And I thought, I don't know what I thought. And I'm looking up and thinking, how's daddy going to be on there soon? And it was a it was a radio. It was a wireless. Oh, I see. And, uh, it was when he was doing Educating Archie. Well, there's and, our first connection. Yes. And that, that's when it, uh, you know, and it was to follow that. I think, I, I don't know if it was uh, Billy Cotton's band show or something else that was on before. It. And she said, he, soon he'll be up there. You know, daddy will be on there. And then he came out and said, I've arrived and to prove it, I'm here. You know, <laughs> Firstly, thank you for the impression. It's, it's like dad is in the room with you. But I mean, to listen to your father on the radio must have been Straight. I mean, when that actually happened, you heard your dad's voice. I yeah, heard that I mean, voice, and then yeah, mum said, "Well, you know," she said, "Well, you'll be here soon. He'll be back. You know, we'll we'll all have dinner together." And uh, it was only a little council, two up, two down, and uh, the front room looked out onto the street, and it was deserted. There were no cars. No people didn't have cars, you know. And uh, dad had a car. He had a little Ford Poplar, 
that he'd got just after he came out of the, out of the RAF. And I'm kneeling there, like waiting for this car to come back. And uh, and I wanted to spend a penny. So I went up to the bathroom and I, I unlocked the bathroom door, went in there. I locked the bathroom door, used the loo. And, and then I couldn't open the door again. It was the lock was jammed. Oh. Mum was downstairs still cooking this dinner. And uh, I climbed up onto the sink and onto the sill. And there was like a little window. And I, I looked out into the street and I saw his little blue popular coming home and I, said, I said dad dad i'm i'm locked in the bathroom <laughs> I was looking around and he borrowed the ladder from the fella next door and he put it up against the side of the the house and he climbed up and uh he got me out put me over his shoulder and carried me down like a fireman's carry that that's my first memory of uh of my dad your dad being a hero, a true hero. Yeah, my hero, hero ever since. Oh, well, that's incredible! What a story! And for your dad to come back was was he away a lot? Or do you remember being taken backstage to shows and theatres? He was away a lot in those years. He used to get, you know, he was continually doing these um, variety bills, which you know there were so many theatres. Every time I had a, a kind of a theatre, you could do you could work fifty two uh, with Panto and summer seasons. You could just work, you know, and that's what he was doing. Constant. He was driving up and down the country. Actually, he wasn't there the night I was born. He was stuck in York. I was in rented rooms. Well, I wasn't born then, but mum was in rented rooms with my aunt, Kath, who was only 12. She was my dad's eldest sister, and she was acting as the midwife. And uh, mum was in these rented rooms in Plumstead on one of the coldest nights, apparently, on record, February the 22nd. And about three in the morning, mum felt I was like on about to arrive and prove it. I, I was there. <laughs> you were there. <laughs> and, uh, you didn't say that. She, though. Said, to, she said to Kath, you, you better get an ambulance. You know, we, we, we got to get to the hospital. And little Kath went out across the road. And there was because of the, the, the cold weather, a water main had burst and the road was up. These workmen were digging the road. And she said, my, my auntie's just about to have a baby. We've got to get to the hospital. Wow. And they got an ambulance and uh, it took us there from Plumstead to Stepney. And that, that's where I was born. But dad was stuck in York because of the weather. He couldn't oh, get yeah, in joking. for two or three days. And the funny yeah. thing was that my, my dad's brother went to see my mum. And when he when he went past the matron, they said, who are you? He said, Mr. Bygraves. And they all assumed that it was dad, my dad. Uh, right. <laughs> and then when dad arrived a couple of days later and said he was Mr. Bygraves, all these nurses and matrons <laughs> were thinking, well, what's going on here? What's this woman up to? Bigamy, you know. But, uh, she's happy <laughs> that's how it started. yeah but then yeah dad was on the road a lot he went away and came home at weekend sometimes he'd stay on the sunday night if he wasn't doing a concert and then he'd be off again on the monday so the first few years but then the next thing was big vivid memory was um when was when he deputized for ted ray that's how he got that break you know when he um ted ray was sick and he was working at the uh at the palladium and uh, and dad stood in for him and the top of the bill was dorothy lamore film star. right she was the top of the bill and dad took that eight minute spot and in the audience that night was dad's new manager john jacobson and val parnell who who was the booker for the fit before he did the uh, the sunday nights at the london Palladium. and he liked dad he liked what he saw and he said to Jock, he said, I like this boy. He said, I'll, you know, next time there's a slot here, I'll put him on the bill. I'll put his name on the uh, on the bill. And the next time there was a slot, 
the top of the bill was Judy Garland. Yeah, <laughs> and Dad worked with her. And they were both the same age. They were both only 28. Were they really? 28, yeah. And she, he said she was so nervous. He said she was so, she was a film actress, essentially, you know, and she, she didn't like the, the fact that she couldn't do a retake. Well, it, it was, you know, the fact that she was out there with two and a half thousand people and you had to get it, like, you know, one shot. Yeah, there's no filming going on, is there? It's, it's so he, said I, he, he, said I, he said, I was the novice. He said, but I, although I'd seen her in movies and doing all sorts of stuff, he said, I was giving her the G, I was giving her, saying, no, you know, you're great. You're, they're here because they love you because, you know, and he was giving her all this boosting. She needed reassuring. Even... Yeah, yeah, she was, because she, she was at like, that age oh, all those people <laughs> isn't and that then, incredible yeah so that was at the palladium and he, he that was at with... the palladium and then he went you know that was just for i don't know a couple of weeks and then she went back to america he went back on the road i think he was in sheffield or something he got a long distance call basically it was from judy garland and uh he thought he thought it was someone having a gag yeah, and it was her, it was her, and she said, "You know, we worked together at the Palladium." She said, "I'm just about a couple of weeks' time about to open on Broadway at the Palace Theatre. Would you like to come over and do a spot?" You know, and I said, "Would I?" He said, "He said I'd love to." He said, "But I, you know, I've got a small family. I've got, I've got. I did. We've just had a little girl." He said, "I've got three very small children." He said, "I don't think I'll be able to do it." You know, and she said, "Well, we look after you. Come and stay with us." So um, dad went ahead to rehearse. A couple of weeks later, mum took myself and two sisters on this, uh, I think it was one of the first big transatlantic flights from, it was London Airport then, before it was Heathrow, took right. us from London to Idlewild. So we went really from like, you know, Romford, Ealing Broadway to Broadway and Broadway. <laughs> and, uh, and there we were. And, 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 and that's my earliest memories of, of seeing him like rehearsing. Like sitting in the stalls and watching him and probably Judy Garland, they, they did a couple of swells. You know the song that he did. I with, do know that, that song. She did yeah. with Fred Astaire. Oh, and, uh, fantastic! And I think I got told off for um for not paying attention. I was chasing this little girl up and down the uh, the <laughs> aisle while the band were playing and pulling her hair, and it, uh, it turned out to be Liza Minnelli. <laughs> no, really. So, it wouldn't be yeah, pulling yeah, her hair these I, days. Yeah, It'd be pulling, pulling her wig, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know who <laughs> they memories. were, really. You know, I was going to say that they went. They did a month in New York, and then Dad decided. I don't think he had a, a, a concept of how big America was, the, the actual size of the country, and sure. he he decided to hire a car and drive from New York to California. Oh, with us you know like a baby in, baby in arms and me four and my other sister eight and we drove right across the states and i do remember that going all across you know the oklahoma things through the grand canyon up in the rocky mountains wow. down through vegas down to um i think san francisco you did a, a concert with uh <laughs> judy garland there and then um when that finished down to hollywood and uh so tell that story about what happened to me in Hollywood? Please, that's, that's like my big story. Oh, go on, you know, please. So I want you to tell me a story. This, um, <laughs> I want to tell you a story, and uh, it was a birthday party, Judy Garland's birthday party, and she she lived in Beverly Hills, and all her friends were all, all that area was next. You know, our next door neighbour was Ava Gardner. I think across the road with a 
the Marx Brothers, and she had a corral. It was like a ranch. You heard of Hopalong Cassidy? He was a yes. famous cowboy back in the day. He was like, you know, before Roy Rogers and all that. He was an actor called William Boyd, but he was actually Hopalong Cassidy. And he was my hero even before I went to America. But he was there on, riding around the corral and they lifted me up and I rode side saddle with Hopalong Cassidy. No. That was my big, amazing thing. And then there was this party going on with, she was making the film A Star Is Born. Uh, that was the film she was making and she had all the people there and Ava, Ava Gardner was there and I'd never been in a swimming pool before and she had a swimming pool I think it was shaped like a piano or something it had a keyboard you know you walk down steps like a keyboard <laughs> and um I couldn't swim they gave me this little duck a little rubber duck rub I put my legs through and I, I paddled out into the middle of this pool and uh, and suddenly this ring started to deflate and I started to go down with it and I couldn't swim and nobody noticed and uh, I, one person noticed and it was the actor that she was doing this film with james mason and yes. uh he, he said there's a kid there in trouble and he apparently took off his watch he took his money out and he dove into the pool with all his clothes on and he pulled me out so that was that was almost you know my claim to fame I always that's say. incredible yeah. not not only was max bygraves your hero but james mason was your real life hero I as well. saved my life james <laughs> you need a third one now don't you anthony that that's yeah that incredible. was just uh, and that was all like before i was five there are bits of it i do remember i can remember that hopalong cassidy thing i can remember driving through the rocky mountains where there were sheer drops of 200 feet down into the canyon and you know and, and there were signs saying beware of falling rocks and yeah it was amazing i mean really i look back on it like like it was another life but yeah it was it's still there somewhere Truly incredible. And by the age of five, you like to fit it all in, don't you? <laughs> you you've yeah. done well since then. I mean, that, 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 those great memories. I mean, your father was at the Palladium performing in pantomime. He must have done some really successful long seasons at the Palladium. And he did. did you appear once with him? Did he get you up? I did. I did, obviously, at the end. He used to do the song sheet. My favourite bit. You know, they, they, they would plant four or five kids down in their thing. And he'd say, anybody like to come up and, you know. And, and they, they made sure that I was there. And so I came up on the stage and uh, I think we did the first gag and he, you know, he said, you don't know me, little boy, you never met me before, have you? And I said, no, daddy, I've never met you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the first gag I ever did. And then we did Gilly Gilly Awesome Feather together, you know, with the song. Yes. And because I'd heard him practice it, I made a gag out of this afterwards. Actually. It's not, not exactly true, but it made it, I got a good laugh of it. I used to say, and I sang all the words, and he said, he said, that's very good. He said, you knew all the words, gilly, gilly, awesome, fedford. He said, and you're going to be five soon. And he said, I'm going to give you five pounds if you can spell it. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. And I used to, in my early years when I started out, probably about 15 to 20, gilly, gilly, awesome, fedford, cats and the by the sea was actually part of my routine when i was doing talent yeah, competitions yeah. yeah i used yeah. to do it as a ventriloquist it was a very tricky thing to do with your mouth yeah. closed you know but uh, yeah i mean speaking of ventriloquism and max bygraves he worked with peter bruff on on the radio and so he, he was had that close proximity with peter and did he did you ever meet archie andrews did you was you in the studio I at any I, point? I, used, I used to do another i kind of worked a lot of this into my uh, 
pattern where I've done it, you know, to kind of make something of it. Because people expect you to say something. If you don't mention it, they wonder why you're not talking about your dad, you know. I used to say I got my first break in show business because of Archie Andrews. At the age of four, I was his body double. <laughs> that's, that's nice because you so, would have been around about because he's a cheeky schoolboy, wasn't he? So you would have been you would have grown up with Archie, really. You would have been yeah, your little brother if you were. I, I think he took studio. me to see the the recording. That's another some part of the routine. But they used to do the the show live, and there were some fantastic people. You know, all the people that were in it that, that, that yes. all went on to you know do great things. Every and every interview that I've had on radio when I was associated with the Archie Andrews play that I I co-wrote, um, I always mention when they say who was on the show with Peter Bruff your father's name would always come up first. And, and I just, while this is in my head, uh, we've just lost Her Majesty the Queen, bless her heart. I had one conversation with her and I wanted to have something that was related, uh, something I could relate to with Her Majesty the Queen. I introduced my wife, Nina, and and I instantly brought up Peter Bruff used to perform at Windsor Castle for you as you were children. And Her Majesty asked me, um, oh, and who was with? And I said, Max Bygraves, Tony Hancock. You know, so I mentioned your father's name in 2014 to Her Majesty. And that's the conversation I, I had with her in those two minutes, you know. Yes, but uh, yeah, he was he was always around when I was mm -hmm. learning ventriloquism. Max would always pop up because I'd done my research on Peter Bruff, you know. And he did, you know, he did. They recorded a couple of songs, didn't they? They had a few, uh, like the Dummy song. Oh, Archie, there's our music. Yes, Mr. Nightray. Here, Archie, being as you are, you must get very lonely. Yes, yes I do, Mr. B. I think what you need is a girlfriend. That would be big Oh, I've got two or three good ideas. Yes. Here's one. I'll take the legs from some old table. I'll take the arms from some old chair. What? I'll take the neck from some old bottle. Yeah. And from the horse, I'll take the hair. Yeah. I'll take the hands and face from off the club. And Archie, when I'm through, you'll have a lovely little lady dummy, and she'll be a friend for you. Oh, that's fine, Mr. Kindly. Yeah, can we make one? A good idea, son. I'll take the legs from some old table. Yeah, and he took me to see the show. They used to do it, broadcast it live. And he went out to, I think they had like a 20 million people listening. I mean, there was there was hardly anything else to, there was a home service, the world service, and BBC, and that was it, you know, unless yeah. you tuned into Cologne or something really obscure <laughs> yeah. no netflix but, yeah and we saw i saw this show and i, I was a bit scared of archie because he was you know although we were about the same size he was like dressed like a man you know long yes. trousers, shiny <laughs> shoes stripy jacket and, you know, and uh, there were lots of gags about that dad said that because uh, peter bruff wasn't a great ventriloquist was i don't know <laughs> he was i don't know anyway he started but, out as a great ventriloquist but the radio he lost his yeah. technique because he used, he used Archie on the air, didn't he, to help him get into yeah. character? So, yeah, yeah. and he used to do a cigar, I think, as well. You know, and uh, apparently, once he said to, um, or you know, you probably know this, he said to Beryl Reed, he said, Can you see my lips move? And she said, No, only when Archie talks. <laughs> yeah, it's a classic line. We present Peter Bruff and Archie Andrews in Educating Archie. We'll be 
Robert Morton, Hattie Jakes, Max Bygraves, Julie Andrews, the Tanner Sisters, and the Hedley Ward Trio. We'll be educating Archie. Oh, what a job for anyone. He's no good at spelling. He hasn't a clue. He tells us three sevens to make twenty-two. It's a problem you can see. To be educating Archie. And here are Peter Brough and Archie Andrews. Hello, what's that? I wonder. Here, are you shaking your head? No. <laughs> I've arrived and the proof is on there. Hello, Mr. Vigraves. Here, what's the bell for? Pod drill. I'm going to give you a pod drill in case there's a fire. Steady, man. That's for coal scuttle you're wearing, isn't it? No, it's my helmet now. Well, you've dented it. Yeah, well, here's the hammer, Archie. Try and straighten it out. All right, here we are. Uh, say, wouldn't, it, I mean, wouldn't it be easier if you took it off? <laughs> well, have all the coal all over the place. <laughs> you mean to say you've got coal in it? I had to, son, to make it fit. Oh. Otherwise, it's a bit tight round my shoulders, see? <laughs> now, first of all, there are four types of blazes. Go on. Yes. There are uh, one, yes. the coal blazes, uh-huh. two, the chemical, yes. three, the wood blazes, uh-huh. and four, the goater. Goater blazes? And you. <laughs> <laughs> now, don't ever treat a chemical fire with a pot for. What's the pot for? Make the tea in. <laughs> Now, resistant moment, I mean, what would you do in the case of a large conflagration? A large conflagration? Yes, like the app round. Now, uh, now, the son, the first thing to do in the case of a fire is to dial 476. And then what happens? Nothing, it's the wrong number. <laughs> those days you know so you're looking up to, to listen to your father on the radio and then television comes along and your father was all over television it was must have been so exciting to you know to sort of be within that world and also you know he comes home to you at the end of the day or the next day <laughs> and yeah. a lot of traveling but you were seven years old and you appeared in a movie with him now i i looked online you can buy these dvds and i'm going to get a dvd this weekend of charlie moon i can't wait to see it and and you appeared in that with your father have you seen it yet i've not seen it yet i'm going to get it eric sykes is in it is that right yeah no there's good people in that there's shirley eaton michael medwin uh dennis price there's uh pat driscoll i don't know you remember her but she was there was a big tv series on when i was growing up robin hood and she was made marion that was a big oh right yeah but uh (laughs) it was semi-autobiographical but it had some it was glorious technicolor and it was directed by a guy called guy hamilton who went on to do all the the early bond films and wow. uh, and it was an all singing and dancing kind of musical thing and i was i was char i was young charlie dad was charlie moon and i i was charlie as a boy so oh, i was in it for about the first 10 minutes i was him sort of dressed actually on a tight pretending i'm on a tightrope with a bowler hat and a, drawn on moustache and an umbrella and trying to balance as I went across this thing. So as an early performer, just showing off that young talent before he grew up to Charlie Moon. It it was a good thing, you know, it was, apparently I had a a bit of a problem saying concert. I was saying comfort 
I used to do that with my teeth constantly. They had to change. They had to change. I kept, I kept fluffing every time I came to. And I want, I don't want to be in the concert. And they can not watch concert. It's not his concert. You know, I, to, I don't want to be in the village show. I think they change it. Yeah, but that that was good. And they, right. I got for that. That that was the first sort of paycheck I ever got. I got to. They couldn't um, give me actual money they gave me a, a a voucher a gift voucher to spend in hamley's hamley's toy shop in london and it was for 20 pounds and this oh. um this thing I, I kept it going for years i used to go back and buy a football or a little box of tricks or a, oh you made I it last I, I think i've got three pound 40 of it left actually <laughs> that won't be worth nothing now will it? <laughs> you get carried well, that, that was the film and uh, and we did a couple of ads as well and at that time they were doing um cin the cinema ads uh you know like they have on television now and uh, we did a family uh advert for for gibbs sr toothpaste where we're all you know in our dressing gowns and looking like the happy buy grapes <laughs> Were well, your sisters the, also in those? Yeah, was they it? were in those things. Yeah, yes. they, were, oh. they were both in Charlie Moon, actually. There's okay. a scene in Charlie Moon when Maxine's only about two or three and he sits uh, on his knee and, and tells her a little story or sings a little story about something. And uh, and then Christine was in the audience. Mum was in the, That was very rare for mum to ever get involved in anything like that. Yes. She, was, she didn't like the, the, the lights, really. She was quite modest. And... Uh, yeah, but we we all played a part in that film. That was a, that was a good one. Oh, amazing! So, so Blossom wasn't really in in show business at all. She wasn't. She wasn't. No, she was funny. No. She was very witty and naturally she was very un, unassuming, unassuming, and nothing really kind of phased her. You know, she was always just mum. I mean, there's a there's a story of something that happened years later in Australia where we were staying at uh, the home of a family called the Jacksons, and they had this really nice house on the on the harbour which had a looked out on the, the harbour and the bridge and and their son was a bit of a whiz kid he developed all sorts of sound systems and he, he went on actually to become a sound man for elvis presley he, he had some great stories but um one one day bruce's name was he turned up at the uh, at the front door uh, with another guy and uh mum answered the door and she said oh come in come in and uh she said, would you like a cup of tea? Cup, you know, made, made them a cup of tea. They chatted anyway. And she said, you're not Australian, are you? Too? And he said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm American. She said, oh, you're over here on holiday. And all this kind of stuff. And she gave him a cup of tea and a, <laughs> and a cheese and tomato sandwich. And she and she didn't find out until after he left that the other one was Bruce Springsteen. Wow. <laughs> what a so, world, eh? <laughs> she, she, she went in for a, for, for a cup of tea and a cheese and tomato sandwich. But Bruce Bruce Jackson was, at that time, was, was sound, the sound man for Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Oh, I see. So you yeah. used to hang around with a lot of Brucies. There was Bruce Forsyth as well, I'm sure, <laughs> yeah. your father, and <laughs> shared yeah. some yeah. stories together. Yeah, so that, that no, that was mum. Mum she, mum was was lovely. She was she was very very natural, you know, and uh, everyone loved her for that. Yeah, she was really sweet. Eyes and teeth. You also showed interest in playing the drums as well, and you went on tour with Max doing. Yeah, as, yeah, as a drummer. My, Were you a teenager then, or I, I was lucky really because I, on my. Thirteenth, Dad bought me a drum. I think a, a drum and a bass drum when I was about ten. I used to drive everybody mad with that. And uh, but then when I was thirteen, 
I, I think I might be 13th. I was became a teenager in 1960. That was a great time to be a, a teenager in the 60s. And I, I developed an interest in, in playing drums. When we went on tour with Dad, and I used to do a little walk on bit, a few gags with him, I used, usually share the dressing room with the, with his piano player and his drummer. And uh, and his drummer kind of took me under his wing and, and started coaching me. He had been a, a house drummer previously at the Palladium years back. And oh. he used to give me lessons. And then I, I got up to the standard where I could actually play Dad's act. So uh, I went on tour with him. We did a few. Uh, yeah, we went out to Australia, South Africa. Uh, yeah, and I, I was the drummer. And then he'd bring me forward and we we do some gags, you know. I was so lucky, you know, because I, I really I was uh, I was never a headliner, you know, big like Dad was. But I got to go to all these great places, stay in these lovely hotels, meet all these people. That were just there, you know. Yeah, well, like with the, the family. Did I tell you about, oh, about yes, Tony Hancock? When I did that gig with Dad in Hong Kong, Dad went back to, they they gave us a, like a return air ticket. And, and he went back, I think he went on to Australia and I, I decided to stay in Hong Kong. I was 19 and uh, I thought mm, maybe I can get a job as a drummer. You know, it's full of drummers actually. Not a lot of Filipino drums, loads of everyone plays drums in Hong Kong. But uh, I did actually get a job as a, as a drummer at one of the, the nice hotels. And uh, there was a the hotel that I'd worked at with dad was called the Mandarin, which was quite a posh hotel. And they had a, a cabaret room at the top on the 20th floor. Every couple of weeks, they'd have somebody come over, you know, they'd had uh, Tommy Cooper came over. Well, all these people that were, that were on in transit, usually going to Australia to work would stop off and do a couple of weeks in Hong Kong. And then on this particular time, it was Tony Hancock. And he was going, he was on his way to Australia to do a TV series. But he, d he didn't really have a cabaret act, you know, and he was, I mean, he was more of a situation uh, actor, wasn't he? You know, he was great yes. with comedy, structured with characters. But with him just doing a, uh, it was not good for him. It was, he was, you know, he wasn't comfortable. He did, he did enjoy doing for, it, did he? I read his biography. Yeah, he did enjoy doing the, the live stuff. He didn't. No. no. So, so d d I, I phoned next week. He said, I'll oh, go and say hello. He said, after, you know, when, when you go and see him and go around, send my regards, you know, and, uh, I, which I did. So I went up and saw Tony Hancock do his show and I, I, I sent a message to his manager. I said, oh, I'm just passing on my dad's uh, good wishes and... Uh, just say hello to uh, Tony Hancock, and he said, "Oh, he said, he said, well, he, oh, you'd have to say hello." He said, Can't, "He said, give him five minutes. I'll, um, you know, to change and uh, come down and have a drink in the room." You know, so uh, I go ten minutes, and I went down in in the room, and he opened the door, and he was all in his dressing gown, and he got a big, you know, huge kind of whiskey or something, and he said, "Come on, come here, come He said, "Want a whiskey?" I said. Oh. I don't know, I wasn't drinking at all. I said, I'll have a Coca-Cola, you know. So I, I, sat, I sat down and he sat on the bed. This is Tony Hancock, you know. And he started talking to me about all the, uh, you know, the educating Archie days, all okay. the work that he'd done with Dad and all the things. And uh, as he, you know, he, he got more and more kind of inebriated, really. And he was getting, he was rambling. He was like, in the end, I didn't know what he was talking about, you know, and he was gone. And his hair dropped and his hand in his closet and he fell asleep. And I'm like in this room here with Tony Hancock on the bed. He's asleep. It's like two o'clock in the morning in Hong Kong. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, what shall I do? So uh, 
I took the glass out of his hand and put it on the table, covered him up with a pulled the cat counterpane over, and uh, I, I went out, turned off the light, and left him. That was it. A week later, in the newspaper was the um, the news that he was found uh, dead in the hotel in um, in Australia. Wow, you know, sad, that, sad that was, ending, wasn't it? Yeah, I one said, of the I was, last. I was probably one of the last people to have a you know a kind of a old chat about the old days and working and reminiscing. And a week later, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd, I don't know if it was an accident or what, but yeah, yeah how sad. But, I mean, he was a lot of surreal moments. He did, yeah, no, it was good. He had all those stories, you know, and uh, he he was a sad. Well, you know, like comedians are a bit sad, aren't they? There, the there are, there are comedians got yeah. fun. Yeah, like the sad one behind you, I can see yeah, on the wall. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but um, yeah, 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 the one on the wall. Yeah. You spent a lot of time in Australia. I mean, Blossom and Max, they loved Australia, didn't they? And uh, did you spend a lot of time out there yeah. as a child? Well, yeah, we, we we used to go out there for holidays and things and Christmases. We used to dad used to sort of fly us all over. Then when our kids were small, you know, we'd have like Christmases there with them. That, that was another following. The, there were a lot of expats there. You know, he could do really good business down there. So he used to time it at the end of the summer here, probably around about this time. They'd go off to Australia and they'd, they'd go into another, they'd just be going into a, another summer. So they could have like a continual, like a nice year. And then they'd, they'd come back here in the spring and then into summer show. Nice. So it worked, it worked very well. Yeah. And he loved the Australians and, and they, you know, they loved him really. Yeah. He did a different kind of act out there. He was a, he was a little bit more. Uh, the jokes were a bit more uh, risque and a little bit because the Aussie liked it. You know, they, he could do it, could go a little bit further there. Oh, controversial! They, they liked it, so uh, he was good. Dad would always sort of knew his, he knew his audience, you know, and he knew what they wanted, and he uh, he knew how to give it to them. Yeah, true pro. And you, you appeared yeah. in a Royal Command performance, didn't you? And was you sixteen at that time? That's right. When at the Alhambra Theatre in um, in Glasgow in 1963, wow. and I was that's when I was playing the drums. Spectacular show at the Alhambra called the uh, Five Past Eight show, and uh, and uh, and Dad used to bring me on, and it, it was an act where he was going to teach me all about showbiz, teach me how to tell jokes, and he, he used to let me get all the laughs. You know, he used to set me up, and I used to do all the the punchlines, and then he said, "Yeah, yeah but you, you can't just do that. You 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 you've got to learn to juggle." You know, and then he'd take three balls and he start, and I'd I'd learn to juggle three clubs, and I from Monsieur Eddie Gray when we were on on uh, oh, working wow. in Brighton. Brilliant. He taught me to juggle. I could keep it, keep it going for about two minutes, and then they got heavy, and I dropped them. But uh, then, then he'd say, "Oh, yeah, we, it's not just juggling. You've got to, you know, you've got to do tap dance, you know." And he'd do a little sort of ticky tick. And I knew a few combinations and time steps. And I, I used to whatever he did, I sort of upped it. He said, "Yeah, but you've got to have a big finish. You can't just do a tap dance, you know. You've got to drums or something, you know." They used to wheel on a, a kit of drums, and I used to do this. Trouble, uh, double drum battle with uh, Martin, his drummer. We worked out a routine that was, you know, an, an answering. With a big finish, and then the band would come in and play the last eight bars, and, and that was the end of my little 10-minute spot. And uh, and the Queen was up there for some 
investiture or something in Glasgow, and uh, they decided to make it a, a benefit do for the Variety Club. So one night she came in, and uh, and I met her again that night you did at um, at the Buckingham Palace. You know when the with the water rats had their uh, hundred yeah, twenty five years. Was it? Yes, yeah, great yeah. celebration. Uh, I did say hello to her again, but she couldn't remember it. I said, I had mum, I said, I, I, we hadn't met before. I'm, we met in uh, in Glasgow in 1963. And she said, what was I doing in Glasgow in 1963? <laughs> I said, I, well, I, said I, I didn't know you were there. You're definitely there. I've got the uh, I've got the photos and I've got the signatures. She said, oh, good. She, she said, it's, you're still doing? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, well, it's nice to know that you're following on from your father's work, you know. Oh. So maybe that was after the conversation you'd had. Yeah. Uh, yes yes i think so yeah and uh, yeah we're always uh yeah. I, I guess a lot of people were talking about max on that that evening <laughs> it's a wonderful wonderful time wasn't it there were some key moments you know that brought him into uh into working professionally and uh, and in the raf that was that was really a big part of it because he you know, he had a captive audience didn't he said he'd love that and uh <laughs> you know and he developed from that and the people he met and uh, when he came out of it, uh, uh, he, he'd had all that experience already. Back to 1999, I'm talking about the first time I met you and the first time I met Max Bygraves. I was booked and very, very excitedly booked to do a, a variety club, a Great Britain lunch. So, so it opened with Bert Whedon after the lunch. Bert Whedon was on. Mm -hmm. Val Dunicum was on, I was on for 10 minutes, and then Max Bygraves followed me. I can't believe I've su supported Max, <laughs> so I was very, very honoured, and still a, a great memory for me today, and, you know, because I'd done my 10, 15 minutes, and then Max done an hour after me, so a great, and I wasn't a water rat then, I don't even know if I knew what water rats were, but I remember sitting uh, on a table not far from Ray Allen, so when I performed and your father was there with Blossom, you were there, Anthony, and Ray Allen was on the table and I really wanted to impress Max and Ray <laughs> Allen with my act. I was just a young ventriloquist wanting to be in this, this world of show business and knowing this royalty of show business we're watching. And, but obviously I, I heard Ray Allen laugh after I'd done a, a certain gag and I could mm -hmm. relax, you know, and then uh, I, I had a great, great spot after that. It was you know, but I was still very young and learning. But that, do you remember that lunch at all? It, it was I an did, afternoon, especially yeah. for Max Bygraves. I've still got the programme. It was for Dad, was it? I was wondering if it was, because they did one for Bert Whedon as well around right. that time. And yes. they had a few guitar players there. I think Brian May was there. Was it? Was Brian May there that day? No, this was for your father. You did. This one, this was a special one for, for no, Max Bygraves. Yeah. Oh, it's for Dad. And was it in Bournemouth? It was Bournemouth, yes. Was it Bournemouth? Wessex Hotel. Was it yeah. the Wessex? Possibly. Yeah. They did a few over the years. They, they did quite a few. Yeah, I remember that. I, I do remember that. But that's going back a bit now. Yeah, that's that was when we we just moved back to Bournemouth. We we just moved back to Bournemouth. We'd had our three. Uh, we had three under three. <laughs> we'd worked three, you know. <laughs> wow. We, we'd got three married three. in 1980. And by 1984, we had three children. So, uh yeah, that was a quite a hectic time, but uh, yeah, so I do you, remember that show. Yeah, so you still didn't get a telly until 1985, then. So, so <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and uh, it was radio up right. until then. 
Oh, mate. But going back to, yeah, that, that was an incredible moment. And that's the first time I met you. And so I've known you 23 years now in, in person. That's amazing. You know? yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, lovely connection. In 1967, you set up your own theatre company in the southwest of England. So wh what was all that about? What what did you want to put into that uh, as a company? That was after I came back from Hong Kong, you know, where I'd been playing drums. I yes. came back to, Dad was working in Torquay. And uh, I didn't tell the family that I was coming back. And he was at, he was at the Princess Theatre. And uh, he used to do, do a gag. He used to come on at the very beginning of the show. And he used to say to the audience, very strict management here. If you don't laugh at all the jokes, they have you thrown out of the theatre. So he'd do a terrible joke. Yeah. Two peanuts walking down Piccadilly. One was assaulted. <laughs> you know, and the lights would go up and no one was laughing. He said, there's a fellow there, not like, Commissioner, there's a fellow there not laughing, and, and it, it was actually it was Dad's piano player. But they, you know, he sat there like with a reading the paper or something, and the, and the, the audience used to think it was authentic, and they yes. frog march him up up the middle eye out of the theatre. You know, was, it was a good game. I found out from the manager that he was doing this game. I said, "Well, could we do something?" I said, "Could I be sitting in that old in that seat?" Because he hadn't seen me for a year. I'd been in Hong Kong. Oh, I said, wow. when he does, that fellow's not laughing. He said, I'll stand up. And, you know, so we did it. We switched it. I, I sat there and dad came down and said, very strange management. Don't laugh at all the jokes I had you thrown out. He did the thing. He said, and dad couldn't see that well, oh. really. He had to wear glasses. He said, Sit, throw him out. And uh, they came and grabbed me. And I, they grabbed me, brought me right to the middle of the state. I said, dad, you're not going to throw me out. I've come 10,000 miles to see you. He said, Andrew, what are you doing here? <laughs> Did your mother know you're here? <laughs> and the audience are thinking, what's all this? They didn't know it was a kind of you know, away from the routine. He said, what are you doing here? Did your mother know you're here? I said, no. He said, oh, he said sorry, ladies and gentlemen. I haven't seen my son for a year. And he completely threw him. He was like, he lost his way then. But uh, that Bless was, him. and in that town, do you, you know Torquay, there's a, there's a yeah. little theatre up at Babacombe. I did a season at Babacombe in 20, yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, well, that this was the little theatre that we we took over. That, that Dad said he said that theatre at the moment. I think um, I think the folder rolls or one of these uh, touring reviews were gay time or something. Yeah. Yeah, one of those things. And uh, he said, go and have a look, have a look at it. He said, is I've heard that it's coming up for for lease next year. You know. He said maybe you could put a little show together and, uh, you know, get some other young talent around you and, uh, you know, and give them a chance. And if we get the budget right, you know, you might get some experience. And and which, so we put this proposal in and they accepted it. And I, and I got the theatre for one year and, and we did all right. You know, we did, very, we did very good. And they gave it to us for another three years. So I had, a, I had the contract with that little theatre. I appeared for two years and the, the following years I put on shows. Actually, the last show I put on was the folder rolls that were brilliant. Did you ever see the folder rolls? No. They were no. Like a, almost like a Victorian company, like the old uh, real review players, you know, but they were so great routines, all the, all the chorus stuff, all the, the comedians really worked. All the slapstick was so well-timed. They'd done it over the years, you know, they really got it together. Yeah, so, a bit like City was, Varieties, that sort of yeah, style. Yeah, it was that sort of thing. It had that kind of feel about it. And yeah. the second, the first, the first year I did, we had a comic, uh, Bryn Phillips. Do you know Bryn Phillips? I've heard of him, Welsh yes. Welsh comedian, he's good. He was very good. But the second year, it was Bernie Clifton. 
Oh, right. <laughs> We've all got yeah, memories yeah. of Bernie. <laughs> yeah. Bernie Clifton, and uh, he, he always ribs me about that. He said, you came up and saw me work. I, I went up to see him work in Nottingham or something. And uh, and we thought that he would be good because he he's a good comedian and he's he got a nice singing voice and he thought it'd just be right for that that Babbicom audience you know mm. and uh, apparently he, he ribs me because I haggled over a, a fiver or something on his <laughs> salary it was it was embarrassing really I mean the whole get out for the for the whole show for the band and uh, twelve other artists was three hundred and fifty quid a week how did we do it. Wow. That was it. that was the, the two musicians and ten other people, and and that was everybody. And we and we, we we managed to get out for that. And if we made any money, then you know it, that we made it for the company. But uh, he said you you knocked me down a five. Yeah, so business was, is uh, business. Yeah, <laughs> that was business, but it was good, you know. And he he said that was in some ways that was a turning point in his his career. He said up until then he'd he'd only been doing clubs where people weren't always ready to listen he said you had a nice attentive audience you know and had a chance to work on things we did sketches we did two changes of program we monday tuesday wednesday one show thursday friday and saturday another show and a, and a sunday giveaway show where the second half was, was like a, a generation game all right so we had three changes of program oh, go, nice. go, and we can put new things in try things out try new numbers and i gave it got me uh, writing a bit you know trying out ideas little songs you know like that so you, english country garden oh, oh yes yeah you do you do parodies as well don't you? oh i you. should be glad but i'm always very sad you know those things so i wrote that for dad years ago i should be glad but i'm always very sad in my english country garden when spring has sprung you should see the things they flow in my english country garden in the tubes we purchase in Boxes without matches in, chocolate wrappers, fish and chips as well. Junk by the ton, like Steptoe and Son, in my English country It's those kind of things that oh, I could do. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. I could try that. it. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Write, I, I write think, little verses. Yeah. I think you've done a version of that for us on the Water Rats in the lockdowns, and we've done a big Zoom meeting. I'm sure you done a bit of the English oh, country you know, garden I, yeah you but you rewrote the words for us it was so nice oh, to I hear did. yeah yeah, I, I, I did. yeah, yeah it's I a little that. sort of uh, it universal cheers one. us up yeah oh it's brilliant you did get into a lot of script writing and songwriting you'd write parodies but uh, I'm going to get on to some of the songs yeah. you've done more recent, which I, I absolutely love your style. There's a lot of humour based in it as well. And your, your whole, you know, since yeah, you were born, I, born around variety and comedy. I was brought up on on that, you know, those, those. Um, I think I, I wrote a little bit of blurb saying that a lot of my early influences were dad's rec, what he was listening to. And he was listening to a lot of comedy stuff from America. A lot of country and western and and people like nat king cole and the ballads you know the great and i was listening to great songs dad always you know listened to good songs well-written songs and i i think in some way that's influenced the way that i try and write you know i, I like songs to have a certain form to them and a, a beginning and a middle and an end and <laughs> you know so that was a big influence on me he, he, he dad was a tremendous influence and we wrote together you know often he'd 
start writing a song and he'd be kind of stuck for a middle part and he'd say you said well, i can't if you've got any ideas for the the middle eight you know it's da, 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 something something you know, i'd go away and you know write something bring it back a master class yeah oh yeah. that's lovely yeah. that he he that sort great. of lean on your shoulder to ask for a favor he did he so much he, he did he, he was so good like that you know he gave me always gave me the uh the, the one of the gags i did with him in in brighton was he, he used to at the beginning of the show he used to come out and tell a joke and just as he was about to do the the tagline he'd go he'd touch his ear like that that was my cue to walk on and the band to, to get ready to play so so he do and you know he went into this chinese gift shop and he and he said he said about a cockney sailor he said i came in here 10 minutes ago I pay five dollars for this fan. Look, I flattened it like that, and I it's all broken, isn't it? All in bits. And the Chinaman said, and I walk out, <laughs> and the band plays a real rousing chorus of Mac the Knife. And I did a, a big finish thing and I walk off. I get applause. And the Chinaman said, When only pay five dollars for a fan, not flutter like this, whole fan still shake head. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You Turn the lights on, on and send them out. Yeah, yeah they're not laughing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, you set it all up and uh, they've forgotten all about the joke by the time, you know, I've done <laughs> yeah. this chorus of, of Mac the Knife. And what's that all about? But, you know, yeah. So he, he, he was very generous with his, um, you know, giving me the laugh. Giving you the laugh. You know, and let me get, get a laugh. Yeah, that is very generous, isn't it, as a performer? And Well, you know, a lot of performers wouldn't do that. Or they they want the last laugh, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course they want to share. You find that out in pantomime, you know. I'm I'm going back to panto soon. I'm doing panto with brother water rat Mike Doyle this Christmas. So mm -hmm. in like six weeks' time, uh, you know, we'll find out about that sharing. He's playing my mum, so <laughs> you know. And and you, I found like a, a lot of people have been generous, you know, to me, and I, and I pass that on. You know, I'm very generous with sort of sharing the line because I I always give it to the dummy, you know. But if there's a third comic sort of within my circle, I I will mm -hmm. let the comic get the laugh you know whereas yeah. he, he'd work with the dummy but i, I suppose mm -hmm. it's a bit like peter bruff archie andrews the mm -hmm. max bygraves at that time you know yeah. so yeah, the dummy and the comic would get the laugh and the ventriloquist would keep his mouth shut yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know he'd, he'd start a limerick and i'd step in and do the like the table you know he, he'd start off like a young man from galway bay took a slow boat to china one day he was tied to the tiller with a six-starved gorilla and China's a very long way. <laughs> <laughs> That's really nice. You've got a great memory for all these uh, anecdotes and yeah. rhymes, haven't you? Towards the end, you know, when his, his memory was going a bit, he'd say, I'm glad I got you around, man. He said, he's always that routine we used to do about, and because I watched him so much, I stood you know, on the side in the wings over the years. I did, I knew I knew his routines inside out. Oh, I he, bet you and, did. Um, yeah. He said, oh, God, I've forgotten all about that, you know. <laughs> you must know his songs as well. I mean, he uh, done that very famous song, The Pink Toothbrush, but you mm -hmm. rewrite songs so you could now call it The Electric Toothbrush, couldn't you? <laughs> you could, yeah, no, you should really. I think that could still be a hit, you know. I think that I, I did send it once to the the British Dental Association, okay. you yes. know, for, for a way to encourage children to. Um, and one of my grandchildren brought home a toothbrush not long ago that actually plays a tune. I thought you could get, if you could get, is manufactured in Hong Kong yeah. or something. You yeah. get a microchip of that in there. You know, that could be, an, it's a nice little that song and they idea. all know it's easy to sing. 
Yes, mm. that's how I get my children to clean their teeth, you know, because they they light up, they flash, and they yeah. play a little tune sort of thing. And it's yeah. you know, yes, and, yeah. yeah, clean your teeth for two minutes to the pink toothbrush. <laughs> Great idea. Oh, conversational. You've done a lot of writing as as well as I said, but you you've performed in a lot of TV shows. Do you remember any of the variety shows that you you would do? performing was that was that sort of working a lot with your father or did you do a yeah lot? we did a couple of series on television we did a thing called side by side which was a series of six shows we did a good idea son and uh yeah i, I used to mostly do interruptions you know it was like he, he, he would always be trying to get on with something and i'd come out and uh yeah uh, and we, we'd get the comedy out of that and but you know i say i i, I have it's made me adaptable. I think that's good. I've had to adapt to lots of styles. And I say, you know, I've, I've had to wear a lot of hats and a few dresses because we did, you know, there were times he got me in drag. You know, we did a, you know, we've done stuff where we were, he was Alma Cogan, I was Ellen Shapiro, and, you know, back in the day and Christmas shows. So uh, I like that. I, I, I find that, you know, kind of a challenge in a way that suddenly we're going to yeah. be doing something, you know, and, uh, he, he, he was always well like i sent you that you know that little song that uh millennium bug thing yeah i know? love the millennium bug thing that you sent me it's so brilliant yeah it's just such a, a bug scene the millennium bug am i a cockroach no well tell me am i a maggot no am i a personally transmitted disease that makes you want to scratch Thank goodness for that. What's my name? Bugsy. I'm Bugsy the Millennium Bug. I'm a cyber highway hitch. In your peasy, cozy and snug. A regular sun of the glitch. I'll appear on New Year's Eve with a blinding flash. What a night, what a mega party to crash. That's me. Bugsy the Millennium Bug He's a bug, Millennium Bug He's a bug, Millennium Bug I'm a techno time bug, on The perfect laptop louse I'm the guy they always first got What, me? Run away from a mouse? My advice to you, my friend, is better stay at home don't try and hide in the Millennium Dome! On me! Bugsy the Millennium Dog. You wrote that for Max, but also had intended it to go to the Jim Henson Company. I did send it to them, but, you know, they kind of passed on it. I don't know why, because I can, I can imagine it, you know, with, a, with some of their fantastic characters. But it, obviously it was, you know, it was for that year, 2000. It was such a big thing. Do you remember it? You know, everyone was so afraid of this millennium bug that it was going to wipe all our computers and everything. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that was the idea. But but Dad totally embraced it, didn't he? He did it all as a kind of a, a Jimmy Durante. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. They would have made a great little animation as well. Oh, it would have yeah. been fantastic. Well, well, let's not lose hope on that as well, because I, I would love to start. I've got my new tour going out next year. If I could if I could learn it and then uh, credit you for that song, get that song out there and get some animation, yeah, it, it yeah. would be wonderful. But I want to I want to keep that going. Thank you so much for sending it to me. I mean, it's Pleasure. it's something I love to get out there and, and play. You know, it's just such a, a funny pick you up. But 
a great song for children to learn. And I can imagine the, my kids coming out of school singing it. My, if my daughter is learning a new song, she's doing a Harvest Festival soon. She's been singing Harvest songs all week. You know, wow. I imagine the Millennium Bug, Bugsy, she'll be ingrained in her another, brain. There might be another scare. You know, you never know. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things going on, you know, but it's, it, it's looking is, back, yeah. it, was, it was something that dad was, you know, he was always up for it. You know, he, he, he wasn't afraid to have a, a go at it, you know, and we put it out and it, it never really did much. And I don't think we even got a play on it. But uh, if someone had picked up on this, it, one of those things you never know unless you, you know, you try it. And yeah. we, we got fertile minds. And uh, when you get an idea, you've got to put it down. Yeah, yeah, you do. And you've got two gold discs because you put them down as well. And you've been a record producer for, for many people, recorded songs by Kenny Rogers, Perry Como. The Seekers. Yeah, they, they covered my songs when I when I was working as a songwriter in in England at ATV Music, and then then the guy that signed us up, a guy called Len Beadle, who was a great music man, got headhunted by CBS in London, and he, he went with CBS. But he, he one of his requests were to ATV. He said, "Can I take my last two writers that I signed, who were, were myself?" And David Riley, who his dad was, some people remember, Tommy Riley was a famous harmonica player, really okay. great harmonica player. Right. So David Riley and myself, Riley Bygraves, that's who we were. And right. we got we got taken from ATV over to CBS in London. And that was, you know, that was a big prestigious thing. And then we started listening to all this American music and thinking, you know, we, we need to go over to America and pick up some of the uh, the vibe and see what I let my flat in London I let flat let it for a year and I went over and uh, moved into a place up in Malibu actually I got a job as a caretaker and, uh, <laughs> Did I, you? yeah I didn't really have, I didn't really know where I was going and I, I got to uh, Los Angeles stay with a friend of my um, my sister for a, for a week and then I thought oh, I've got to find I can't stay here forever found the LA Times and in the back there were all these places for rent and then there was a guy uh, looking for a caretaker on a ranch so I thought that sounds interesting I went up there and uh, it was up in the Malibu mountains you couldn't see another property it was like on its own it, you know MASH you've ever seen the TV yes. series MASH you know that opening shot where all the helicopters coming over the mountains that, they are the Malibu mountains that's where they filmed oh, so it was okay. like that you were like right away from everything and he got this ranch he was a real eccentric he built this place twice. It burned down. They have these these brush fires, and he was like, you know, he was like an old cowboy. And he built this ranch to look like a, a Spanish mission. Had a bell tower and everything. But he used to go off every morning at six o'clock in the morning, and all I had to do was uh, water the dogs and water the horses and make sure that nobody came on the property. And I, yeah. and then there was a piano there. And he had an uncle who had a junk shop. Who got, he got me a kid of drums. And I and David Riley came over. And we for about three months, we just sat up in the, the ranch writing songs and uh, travelling around meeting people. That's how we got to meet Kenny Rogers. And uh, wow. yeah, that was a good period of time. I, I met Kenny Rogers once. Uh, I was I was flying out to Branson, Missouri to work with the Osmonds. And just sat opposite me in the waiting room was Kenny Rogers and, and his two sons. He's got two twins and and his wife. And the, uh, I, I did recognize him at first. I'm not sure I knew who he was. And then I thought, that's, I'm sure that's Kenny Rogers. Because his face kind of changed towards the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that he, he had a little bit of work done. But 
but I, it was kenny rogers and i shook his hand i said thank you for your work sir you know and and it was amazing i mean yeah to write songs for him he was i i saw a picture recently of dolly parton on stage with a kenny rogers ventriloquist dummy on her knee so she must have done a duet with him you know it's, yeah. but yeah. when he wasn't there <laughs> that that looked great yeah that, that was another sort of thing and then we you know i my wife came out before we were married and, and then we we did some traveling we we got a an rv you know like a camper van and we drove we drove all around the states we went down from los angeles down to new orleans for the mardi gras and then up through all those southern states through nashville memphis and we did about six thousand mile round trip and all the time i was kind of listening to the, the local radio and soaking up all that that's probably where that urban cowboy that does come from there that did you have you listened to that urban cowboy yes the urban blues? cowboy country blues song i oh, love it's it it's such a again humor there's a lot of humor injected into it's that. A real hick, isn't it? i'd rather wear my blue jeans dusty boots to shiny shoes a tiny jacket Man, I just can't hack it Hell's not a look I choose I'd rather drive my pickup To a Porsche with auto cruise I got those old disturbing Misplaced urban Urban cowboy country blues And that's the truth I'm living in a town That that is a true story. We were travelling on um, on the road, and we went to this uh, store, like a general store, and uh, bought some provisions. And then every day you used to drive about two or three hundred miles on to the next destination. And when we got to the next destination, I looked for my wallet, and I couldn't find it. And I thought, oh, I got everything in there, all my money. I'm out of petrol. My dad, it was in that shop 200 miles back. <clears throat> no. I said, we're going to have to go back to that shop. I said, because we're stuck. Anyway, in the meantime, we checked into a, a motel and, I, and dad was in England and I phoned him. Back. This town was called Anthony. Have you seen the photograph? There's a town called. <laughs> no. Says, Welcome that? to Anthony. <laughs> Not the same, you know. So I, this, so I phoned him up and he said, you know, middle of the night it was, he said, hello, where are you? He said, well, what are you doing? I said, it, it, Dad, it's Anthony. He said, yeah, yeah, where are you? I said, Anthony. He said, yeah, I know it's Anthony. Where are you? I said, no, Dad, I'm in Anthony. It's a place called Anthony in New Mexico. I haven't got any money. I said, can you can you send me, can you wire me something on the Western Union? You know, I'm stuck. He said, oh, I'll arrange something. And he, he arranged to send me like a $100 to get enough petrol to go back to pit. And when I went into the shop, the guy saw me coming. He said, uh, you were in here yesterday. Did you, uh, did you lose something? I said, I did. I said, could you describe it? I said, well, yeah, it had a, this. I had an American Express card. I had a, it was a photo and, a, and about $50. He said, 
be careful next time. Oh, so that's I got good my wallet thing. back. Oh, brilliant. So good, good for Anthony that, that, and Anthony. That was a great way to... Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but this this is where I met this guy in a bar talking about being oh, fed right. up because they were building an urbanisation. They were taking him out of the, the, the way he'd lived, with very basic kind of living to a, a housing estate with running all mod cons and he wasn't happy with it. So that, that's where, you know, people ask where ideas come urban, from. That's urban cowboy country comes from. So it's a true story, that. Wow. Is that amazing? I, I really yeah. love the Coral Nation song that you wrote. And this is, it's very Os Osmond-esque, you know, or Beach Boys, because the harmonies in the song. And the, the Coral yeah, Nation. Yeah, great harmonies, aren't they? It's a beautiful song, yeah. yeah. And was that to do with Her Majesty the Queen, that song? Well, it was, it was originally, I wrote it for my mum and dad's, for, the, oh. for their golden wedding anniversary and it had a slight if you go on youtube you can there's a thing called uh, max and blossom by grace 67th wedding anniversary oh. and it's the original song but Lovely. all along i thought actually a few years ago i tried to get the the when when it was the uh silver jubilee for the queen i wrote another lyric and i tried to get the water out i said why don't we try and get this out and put it out as a as a fundraiser you know yeah and it would be a nice way of you know paying tribute to the queen and they never went for it so mm. i kind of shelved it and then when the platinum jubilee came along this last one i rewrote it again and made it you know in the present now and then i got it out too late really i had a bit of trouble with the artwork and then the queen passed away so i rewrote it again as a sort of a looking back on her life and times. So it's, it's about a third generation lyric that, but the melody, and I didn't want to use an orchestra. I wanted it to sound churchy, a bit sort of gospel, you know. Right, gospel, yeah. A little bit of majesty to it. So yeah. this this guy, this guy called Christopher Phillips, uh, is, um, he's got a tribute band called the Illegal Eagles, and uh, he does all the Eagles. Brilliant group. Band. Yeah, and I said, Can you give me some really, and he's done some lovely harmonies in there. Yeah, really, and it, it kind of lends itself to that.
So I, I do like to try different things, you know. You are trying different things here. And going back to David Riley, you've written a book together, a children's book called Pucula. Is it Pucula? Pucula. 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 Have you seen that? That's on. You can get that on um, Amazon Kindle. Is it just it's Kindle? A download. Not hard copy. It's a download only. Yes. It's just a download. You, how old are your children now? Uh, six how and eleven. Well, probably the eleven-year-old would, would, would like it. I it's all she... about you know. Uh, have a look. I think you can download it for nothing. Actually, I think. Uh, but it's a, you know it's a story about a, a humpback whale, a singing whale. That uh, that uh, saves the life of a, a young Eskimo boy, and wow. then his adventures growing up. And it's in the last century when they were still hunting and harpooning whales. It's a it's a conservation thing, really. Yeah, that's that's a brilliant thing. It's really nice. I'll share that. That's a really lovely thing yeah. to do. And um, you. so, so your collaboration with David Riley sort of goes on and on. And yeah, you're, you're making a, a double CD compilation of Max Bygraves members as well, and. That's a musical biography. Well, that's that's the last thing that we actually did together, Dad. And okay. I. So that, that has that's been issued a few times, and I, I'm thinking of actually reissuing it this year. You know, before the end of to coincide with his centenary, maybe repackaging it because it's actually Dad talking about his life, linking all the all the moments that when things changed. So and I wrote those two, the two last songs. I wrote for you was that one, you know, one more sing along song, yeah, and also a song between that was to close it and to he does golden years on there as well, but he wanted an opening song and I wrote a thing called I'm a survivor, but I've, I've which I've got I've rewritten now as a, a tribute to him, which is like uh, wow. he was a trooper, uh, looking back on uh, on his his life. I'll do that for you one day if you like. It's like a it's a little reflective thing about his career and I do a little bit of chat on it you know I might re, re, redo the vocal I'm not happy with the vocal but that, that might be nice to put out again as a little tribute and I you know donate the um the uh, the royalties to the uh Alzheimer's Society because they, oh, they, yeah. they were good with the folks you know towards the end so uh yeah that's a, another little project I've got in mind yeah that's amazing i mean to, to pay tribute to your father in a way you know he he, he paved the way for not just yourself but for many entertainers performers presenters you know singers comedians uh, everyone talks very fondly of, of max bygraves you know and and still to this day and i i heard a comedian a couple of days ago on a podcast uh praising your father did i send you this link you did Danny Baker, that's Danny right. Baker. Yeah, and uh, and he was talking a good five minutes about Max and how much he adores Max. Uh, that's so nice that the legacy carries on. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant chat though. But it's so nice when I heard the Max Bygraves link. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we are celebrating a hundred years of Max mm -hmm. Bygraves. So you say sixteenth of October, twenty twenty two. That's right. That would have been you know dead at a hundred. He 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 passed away about three weeks before his 90th birthday. He was born in 1922. I was born in 40. He, he was 25 when I was born. So I spent 65 years really working. And, you know, and he, it was like having kind of three dads, really. You know, there was there was dad, dad, who was like dad. There was yeah. dad, the person that I worked with, like a, you know, collaborator. And then there was Max Bygraves, who was the, the persona that people knew, you know. Of course, and, yeah. You know, it was interesting. I mean, we had to kind of shift. I mean, he was always dad. You know what I mean? But it was it was funny how 
when you suddenly you're in, a, in a, an environment and he's and he becomes who people think he is or how yes. people know him. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. I used to love the family fortunes. I always remembered your dad doing family fortunes. Yeah. You know, it was, it was it was such a great. Show. I love that show. Anyway, but um, it is brilliant, and you're so much like your dad as well. You sound and look like him, and you can yeah. you can make yourself sound like him exactly yeah. like him. But... I used to pick up the phone, and there you say, "Hello, Max." I said, "No, it's Anthony." Now, oh, come on, Max, stop mucking around. <laughs> I said, "No, it is Anthony." No, you know, no, I don't have to convince people. And they always say, "Go and do that." I want to tell you a story. <laughs> and so when it wasn't him, you would say, he's not arrived. And to prove it, he's not here. Not here. <laughs> he's not here now because that's the end of Eyes and Teeth with my very, very special guest today, Anthony Bygraves. Thank you for being on the show and sharing these amazing stories. I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of, of you and what you've done as well and what you're doing for, for your father's legacy. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Been great being on it. Nice to talk about the old days. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I want to tell you a story. <laughs> now, if you've ever been to a Royal Variety show, you know at this point of the show we always have three cheers for our royal family. Tonight we're not going to do that. We're going to have a sing along to one of the loveliest ladies that ever lived, our Queen Mother. Ten years ago, this week, that my dad went to that big sing-along in the sky. And one of the last songs I ever wrote for him was for an album called Max Bygraves Remembers. And uh, it was a song called I'm a Survivor. And uh, it was one of the last songs he recorded, which was rather ironic. But uh, since then, I've rewritten it. I've taken the same melody and I put new words to it and uh, this is a tribute to my dad he was a trooper and that's a fact out on the road doing his acts because he knew the show must go on show must go on he heard the laughter and the applause felt the excitement of more encores cause he knew the show must go on he travelled the world to so many places he lost count of the miles but he remembered those warm, happy faces, the laughter, and all those smiles. Give him a moment, he'd give his all. He'd stay until the last curtain call, cause he knew the show must go on. During my dad's lifetime, he recorded over 2,000 songs. He made 54 albums, 31 of them went either gold or silver. I know because I used to have to polish them for my pocket money. On a Saturday, I used to polish these records. And if he liked what I did, 
he gave me a half a crown. And then he used to encourage me to put it into this little metal box under the stairs. And it wasn't until I was 12 I realised it was a gas meter. But now, now the stage is empty. The lights are all dim. There's no more music. There's no more him. So, how can the show go on? The way it once did when he was in town. Before the Lord God pulled that curtain down. How can we ignite that bright star that once shone before the sparkle and the magic had gone? Well, I still have my memories and they'll never be gone. Not as long as there's still a sing-along song. Because in my heart, he's always singing. He's always singing and saying, Anthony, the show must go on like it's always done. And that's a good idea. <laughs> Love you, Dad. The BBC tell me that tonight there'll be over 20 million people watching this show. So all those people that are looking in tonight, turn up the volume, open the windows, sing these songs, they're all in the back of your programme, and we'll have the biggest sing-along in the history of the world. Are you ready, Ronnie? Oh, you beautiful doll, you great big beautiful doll. Let me put my arms about you I could never live without you all You beautiful doll, you great big beautiful doll And if you ever leave me how my heart will end I want to hug you but I feel you pray
Chris and Teve. Huge thanks to Anthony for his time today and wonderful stories to kick off season 13. You can find Anthony Bygraves on Facebook to find out his latest record book or project including tributes to Max on this special occasion. Thanks to Anthony for sharing with permission his wonderful songs and showpieces including Let's Go Parlay Cockney by the Bards of Bow, Urban Cowboy Country Blues, Bugsy the Millennium Bug, the Golden Years, and from YouTube, the dummy song by Max Bygraves and Archie Andrews, hosted by Mislaid Comedy Heroes, Educating Archie 1951, the BBC Archive on YouTube, and Max Bygraves at the 1984 Royal Variety Performance, hosted by Opera the Phantom. Today's quote is from Judy Garland. Always be a first-rate version of yourself, instead of a second-rate version of somebody else. Eyes and Teeth is written, produced and hosted by Water Rat, Steve Hewlett. Vocals by Lola, Larissa and Nina Hewlett. Additional vocals by Rich T. The Eyes and Teeth music and jingles are produced and performed by Water Rat, Kevin Dean. Join me on edition two of Eyes and Teeth, The Rats, when I chat with all-round entertainer, not the MP, Steve Barkley.